Welcome to Shepherd Peace Ministries. I'm Nathan Clark, and here this, today we are going to be looking at uh, an interesting question, um, one that's been around for quite a long time now. We're going to be looking at the flood, and we're going to be determining whether the flood was a local flood or was it a worldwide flood. Now, this is a really big subject. I am not going to take you down the road of rock layers. I'm not going to take you down the road of why we find fossils of fish and sea creatures on the top of the highest mountain. What we're going to do is, is I, want to, I want to stay with the Bible. I want to take the Bible and I want to take, we'll say, um, the area that the Bible is referencing, where it all began, and we're just going to, we're going to make a comparison and see if, in fact, which, if it is possible for there to be a local flood, or is the verses in the Bible indicating a worldwide flood? Now, obviously, there's got to be some confusion there, or we wouldn't have the question to start with. So, out of, out of the scripture, people are interpreting that this is referring to something local, not worldwide. And so, I want to take a moment, because I, I find a lot of times that when we have an agenda... We read that into scripture. And so today, my agenda is simply truth. I, it, doesn't, see, it doesn't matter to me whether it was a worldwide flood or a local flood. Yes, this will change the way you understand who God is, which is what we're going to, I, part of what we're going to look at. Is God a liar or does he tell the truth? When God threatens you with a, a large consequence, is that symbolism? Or is it reality? You know, cause so depending on how we take this can influence our understanding of the need for salvation. Is salvation really needed? I mean, if God has all these big stories where he says, if you don't do this, this is going to happen. And then I'm going to send in a savior. But if it's all just kind of, well, I'm not going to really send you to hell. Hell's more of a symbolic place. Everybody's going to be in heaven anyways. And I just kind of sent Jesus because I wanted to build that relationship with you. And I thought if I sent a savior that even though he wasn't necessary, that you guys might like me better. And, you know, that's really important. to me. Is that the God? that we want to worship. I'm not going to lie to you. There are a lot of people out there that like that God and are very comfortable with that God and are okay with that being the God of, of, of the Bible. But it's not. If we know our Bibles even a little bit, we know that when God says he's going to do something, he will. And if he says he's going to do something bad, it's going to be bad. And that if we need a Savior, it's because we need a savior and although maybe the story of the flood isn't comprehensive in that entire subject but if if he's if he's not being completely honest about the flood maybe he's not being completely honest about other things so let's look and see what the bible says is uh is it is it possible that what god kind of alludes to it was something much smaller than it initially sounded. And when I say allude to, let's, I want to show you what I mean. I want you to uh, open up your Bible. We're going to jump in uh, to Genesis chapter 6, verse 13. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. 
Now, at just very first glance, does this sound like a small thing or a big thing? At very first glance, this sounds like, to me anyway, sounds like a big thing. I mean, we're using words like all flesh, that means all living things, we're going to store them with the whole earth. It just, and there's other verses that we could go to. This is actually a really long story. We don't have time to go into everything. So, but there's other verses that will give you that same feeling that this is bigger than a local area. But just because we have that feeling, I don't think that that is enough to say, oh, from this verse alone, it says all flesh. Oh, that has to be a global flood. I do think that it's probably indicating that that's the direction it's going. But we can use all flesh, saying all flesh in the Mesopotamia area. All right, and, and, and there's other areas of the Bible where, where it gives the indication that it might be something bigger and it's really referring to a more specific area or a more specific people or a more specific aspect of what we might read into it. So I don't want to be one of these guys that's going to camp out on the word all. Just because it says all, if we know our Bible and other aspects of the Bible, all doesn't necessarily mean all-inclusive. Everything. All right. Sometimes it, the Bible might say that we need to go preach to all the people or all creatures. Does that mean the ants all the way up to um, the elephants? All See, we, we, I don't want to be locked into that. And I can't honestly sit here and tell you that when Jesus said go and preach to all creatures, that I have to be locked into the idea we got to preach to the elephants. Because he said all creatures. Now, how, do you, how do you get out of that one, Nathan? Well, I'm going to get out of it because that just doesn't make any sense. And I'm going to be able, I think that I can honestly say that if we apply the rest of the Bible, that he's talking about a specific group of people, a specific group of creatures, not every creature under the sun. But I can't go over there and say, oh, okay, you're not going to interpret all creatures as all creatures, but over here, you're going to interpret all flesh or the whole world as I'm not. I'm not. I'm going to be fair to you on that. And I'm going to say that this doesn't lock it down to being a global flood. So let's just look at the, what we have in the story. Some of the evident pieces that we can add together, assuming that up to this point, it could go either way. All right. So let's start in Genesis chapter six, verse 15 and see what we have here. Start in verse 15. It says, and this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length, this is giving us the description of the ark. The length of it. The ark shall be 300 cubic in breadth and 50 cubic in the height of their three cubit, 30 cubit rather. A window shalt there make to the ark and the cubit shall thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof with lower, second, and third story shalt thou make of it. So this is the description of the ark. If we were to take the time to break all these measurements down, and I believe if I got it right, I at least got the square footage. The total square footage, usable square footage of this ark would be 100, 100 plus thousand square feet of usable space. This is a large boat. This is not, it's no little, little thing. It's, it's a big boat. Far larger than my house. Far larger than your church. This is, it's a big thing. Okay, so we have to ask the question, if this is local, why is God requiring such a big boat? Does the boat fit 
to space. Not only that, a big boat's going to take a lot of water to float it. So this is definitely going to have to be something larger than a, a river flooding or something like that, or it wouldn't even float. All right. But a local flood in the right condition, we can produce something that would cause this um, boat to float. But we still have to answer that question, why on earth is it going to have to be so big? The animal content of that local area is not going to justify the size of this boat. All right, so there's, we'll say puzzle piece number one. Let's go to, X, let's go to Genesis chapter 6, verse 19 now. And every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. Thou shalt, thou, they shall be male and female, of fowls of their kind, and of cattle of their kind, and every creeping thing of the earth after his kind. Two of every sort shall come unto thee and keep them alive. Okay, so un, amongst these animals, we see of fowls after their kind. So we have the land dwellers, obviously, but then we have these birds. Now, I want you to, I have a map here. This map is a uh, topographical map of the Middle East. In this map, we find they're just, uh, well, you can find the Euphrates and the Tigris River. In that area, you'll see a little green spot that I have circled there for you. That spot is considered the Mesopotamian plain, or basin rather. That is where it is assumed that this flood, this local flood, occurred inside of this area. Now I have here an, a map that is more blown up, as you will see. In this blown up map, we can see that the two sides we start here on the east where we have the actual mountains. This would be um, the mountain that the Bible would refer to as the mountains of Eret. And then on the other side, we actually get into the, the wilderness, the desert that um, Abraham actually wandered through to get to the land of Canaan. And in the middle of that, we have a low spot, which is the Mesopotamia Basin, which is theoretically where the, the local flood occurred. Now, here's the thing. That's not a small area, but that is not an area so large that birds couldn't fly out of it. And remember, we only have to save, of the birds, we just have to save two. All right, that's it. So all we have to do is, is create a situation. I mean, if we're gonna, is God's hand in this or not? We're going to see that his hand's in it big. Can God not just inspire that bird, at least two of them, that may be the only birds in the whole world that live right there? There's another aspect of it. There are birds that only live here. I guess it's possible. There's animals that are kind of, you know, stuck in their own little corner of the word world. This is not really a, a tight corner that is surrounded by an environment that would keep animals in. But nonetheless, birds would not be trapped here. So I have to ask the question, if it's not a global flood and it's a local flood, wouldn't the birds just fly out? No real need to save the fowl of the air. And then for those of you who might say, well, he's talking about birds that can't fly. Well, penguins maybe, I don't know that that's there, but even if there is a species of bird that I perhaps don't know that has wings but can't really fly very far, 
again, it references foul. And foul is, make, is the, uh, let's make sure, I, yeah, foul is, is an animal that can fly. The flying animal. Even the bat, in the Bible's terminology, considered a foul. It has to fly. So it has the ability to fly. All right, so there we have, we'll say that question number two. Why, why are the birds on the ark? Why don't they just fly out? Now, let's go to uh, Genesis chapter 7, verse 17. Now, there's a lot we could say about this, and I'm trying to keep this in kind of a, a rather tight time frame, so not to overuse your time. But I believe that what we're looking at are enough pieces of the puzzle to determine whether this is a global flood or a local flood, just from the Bible alone. So what happens is when we leave the Bible too much, and we start going into, we'll say, the science. Now, I'm not against science. I think science is great. And I think science is real. I don't think that what we label science today is really the definition of science. Science is to um, observe and study. A lot of the stuff that we call science today has never been observed. We're, we're just assuming. We're hoping. We're praying. And, you know, Christians are the same way. There's a lot of stuff we haven't seen. I didn't see the flood. I have God's word to tell me what happened. Science doesn't even have that. Only they do, but they, they reject it. They want to do something different. But a lot of stuff they say is scientific evidence is something they've never seen. If you've never seen it, then you don't know really what the answer is. So you're making a guess. And sometimes they guess right, maybe. I don't know. But true science is saying, I saw this. And then I studied it, and I determined by watching something that actually happened in front of my eye, I've determined why this happens. But to say I've never seen life create itself, yet be able to go back and say, well, this is what happened. Same way with, with any other aspect of science, even in the area of the flood. They say, looking at these rock formations, and they're going, well, they're here. I don't really know why they're here. Creationists got the same problem. We've got a guess. We've got something that says, well, something really big happened and something really big needed to happen to have some of these rock formations. But I wasn't there. I don't know for sure that that mountain was pushed up out of the ground by the flood. I don't know that for sure. But don't be fooled. Scientists don't know either. They didn't see it, just like you. And so that's why I want to remove myself from that. There's lots that we can learn about science from the Bible, but I don't want to get into that scientific argument. I just want to stay here with the Bible. And that does two things. One, that eliminates the argument with science. And two, it eliminates me addressing people who don't really care about the Bible. Only a true believer is interested in what the Word of God has to say. And since I'm only going to look at the Word of God and assume that you trust and believe that the Word of God is true, that eliminates a whole lot of people that are going to spend time listening to this lesson. And I'm not interested in them. I'm interested in you. I'm a flock feeder. And I leave it to God to build the flock, and then I use the, the talents that he's given me to feed the flock. So, let's now turn to our next little piece of the puzzle. Genesis chapter 7, verse, we're going to start in verse number 17. And the flood was 40 days upon the earth, and the water increased and bare up the ark, and it was lifted up above the earth. And the waters prevail. Okay, so in 17, what we have here is the water increase. That is where it went from no water to water just continually every day for 40 days began to increase, or was, was 40 days rather, water was being uh, Seen coming down from heaven. This is the rain. 
All right, after that 40 days, the rain did cease, but something else continued to happen. Verse 18, and the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went up from the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills under the whole earth and heaven were, were covered. Fifteen cubic upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. Even after the rain, the waters continued to increase. So this idea that 40 days of rain has filled the earth. And I'm sure it wasn't your standard rain. But for 40 days it rained, water increased. But after the rain ceased, it continued to prevail from out. And then we can read, if we're just going to take a little side note. Um, in verse number 11, we read that the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. So we have water coming from two sources. From the heavens, rain, and then from the fountains of the deep, we have it coming up out of the ground. So these two things working together produced the flood. All right, so it was for 40, 40 days and... It, okay, so it rained for 40 days. And then if we jump down to uh, verse 24, and it says, The waters prevailed upon the earth 150 50 days. So for five months, the water continued to rise. And at, since we know 40 days was all the rain was, the water was coming up out of the ground. Increase. Now I want you to open up or look at that, that blown up map again that I had earlier. In this map, we will see, we'll see what, the, what they call the bowl, where the water is going to be trapped. On one side, we have mountains that go upwards to 11,000 feet or better. That's on the east. On the west, I've done my best to kind of break this scale down into feet, but we have roughly uh, uh, an elevation above sea level, somewhere between 12 to 1,500 feet that kind of continue on that western side of this basin. And then, of course, at the very top of the north, we have the mountains again. So we see that up to this point, we've got a, a rather deep little bowl. We got one little problem though. The south. See, the south has over a 200 mile wide mouth that steadily, from the north down to the south, is steadily going towards sea level. Sea level. That means there's not even a hump somewhere in between. It is continually working its way down. So, what we have here, if you would imagine a kitchen bowl full of water. That we'll say is the local flood. And I was just to take a side of it, just one side, and break it off. How long would that bowl hold water? Now, this is, this is, this is important. It says that under these conditions, and now we're not, not going to look at the archaeological proof that water was coming up out of the ground in this area. You would think that water that's... Spewing up out of the fountains that there would be some pretty significant evidence in this little area that this happened. But let's just assume that it did happen. It, how much water would have to be dumped into this area to keep up with over a 200 mile wide exit into the sea? This water had a lot, it had a place to go. 
a big place to go. The Persian Gulf would jump right into the ocean. It had, there was nothing to keep it there on the southern border. So my question is, is that we have five months that this water without rain, because we can't give credit to the runoff of the mountains or anything else. This is without rain. For five months, this water is continuing to rise in that area, even though it's dumping it at an unmeasurable amount of water every single day. Yet, the fountains of the deep are able to not just keep up with it, but to overpower that drainage. Now, let's look into Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, continuing. And remember Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. And the fountains also in the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters returned from off of the earth continually. All right. So now we're at a point at five months into this whole process, the water from the below and the waters from above are done. No more water input. Okay. Now we have just what's there. All right. And we know this is at the five month mark. Five months. All right. Now we're going to go, let's see here. Yeah, keep reading. And the waters return from off the earth continually. And after the end of the 150 days, the waters were abated. They were decreased. That means they are now starting to decrease. And the ark rested in the seventh month of the 17th day of the month upon the mountain of Ararat. So we're still at the five-month point into this whole process. The ark begins to find a high spot. Now, if you look at your map, we know we can we can only go so far into the mountains because they get higher than the flood itself. And so the the the, the Bible says that it covered every hill. So we know that it has to be something inside of that basin if it's going. And there are a few lower hills, but what you'll see is. On that map, I hope you, if you see that map, what you can see is, is here on the west side, our elevation is about 13 to 1500 feet. Up there in the northern aspect of that, we have a few little hills, we'll say small mountains that get up to around 3000 feet. Now, there's no way for the flood, according to the Bible, it says that all the hills were covered. There's no way for the flood to cover those little hills or those mountains because they are not greatly, but a few thousand feet taller than the water's potential ability. I mean, once you hit the edge of the bowl, it flows out. You can never get the flood any higher than the sides of the bowl unless it's a global flood. That changes the rules quite a bit. But if we're going to stay inside this basin, once I hit one of the, the lowest edge of the bowl, it begins to pour out and go somewhere, which means those mountains up there in the north could never be covered. What's calling the word of God a liar. And we don't want to walk down that road. Now, six months. So I don't know where this ark, but I guess it could have gone over there towards the edge of the mountain and caught one of those lower hills and it begins to set settle on a hill. All right. Now, some interesting things begin to happen after that happened to happen. It's not over. 
All right? The flood of the rain stopped, and the waters have no longer gone up, but now they're starting to steadily go down. But is it over? No. Let's read what the, uh, the Bible has to say in uh, Genesis chapter 8, verse 6. And it came to pass, the end of 40 days, and Noah opened up the window. This is 40 days after they had settled on the mountain, the ark which he had made, and sent forth a raven, which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. So what we have here, he sends out a raven. And the best that I can understand, I guess there's two ways to understand what's happened. The raven either flew around from one place to another, or to and fro, or it's making reference to and fro as, which I think is more likely when we read the next thing about the dove, that he would come back to the ark, get a break, and then he'd go out and look again. So he kept coming back and forth from the ark out, ark out, but he kept coming back to the ark because there was no place for him to land. Can I prove that? Yes. And then the next verse, it says, also he sent forth a dove from him to see where the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and so she returned unto him in the ark. And the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put, let's, there's that whole earth. But again, I'm not going to lock it in right there. I'm giving that one away. Now that could mean the whole Mesopotamia basin. Then he put forth his hands and took her and pulled her into the ark. Now, here's, here's the question. I did a little, little bit of research on these two birds, the raven and the dove. And the raven actually had a, a pretty big ability to travel without stop. But the dove is the most unique. It can actually fly up to 500 miles without rest, without having to land. Now what we saw here is, is the dove went out and found no place to put her soul down. So we're going to assume that the dove instincts are keen enough that it can, it's going to fly half that distance and then fly back. But here's the thing. If we look at our map again, we're going to assume, we, we, we have to assume that the only places that this ark could rest initially would be on the edges of this basin. There's nothing in the middle, and the three hills that are in the middle are already uncovered, so they couldn't have settled down on that. So it has to be something that was covered over there on the, on the edge, either on the, the east side of the mountains, or it settled over here on the west side there in the desert. We know it can't be the west side because the Bible clearly says that the ark landed on the mountains of Ararat. So it has to be over there on the east side. Now, if I send out the dove, everything behind me on that east side would be uncovered land. I mean, that's pretty clear to see. So right off the bat, you'd say, well, the dove has a place to put his feet. All right. And we're not at any great altitude because remember, I'm sitting here looking at this topographical map. The deepest this water could be from sea level is about 1,300 feet. And I might be off a little bit on that, but not much. So they're, uh, they're only at an elevation of about 1,300 feet. That's barely mountain status. They are not in any way in the snow hills of the, the great Appalachian. This is, this is just simply... A high spot. But the dove could not find a place to rest his feet. So we're going to assume that the dove is a little disoriented and he couldn't do the most basic, which is just turn around and fly towards the land. We're going to say that the dove went out. I don't know why, but we'll just give it, you know, sake of, of conversation. We're going to say the dove went ahead and it flew west towards the water. 
Well, the widest span on this whole thing is less than 375 miles. And that is truly the widest. And if we really get uh, technical, some of that might have shrunk up a little bit once the water started abating. That is not too far for the dove to fly out of. And that is assuming that it flew the longest way. Well within its flight ability. Yet it came back. Which tells me that this flood was far larger than this local flood. Because the dove, even after the waters have been going down for 40 days, still couldn't find land within his reach. And the raven has a pretty great reach as well, and he's continuing to try this and not. And then, of course, we're ignoring the whole fact that just to the east of him is nothing but land. Where did that land? The raven would have surely found that. All right, so there's that question. All right, next let's move on to Genesis chapter 8, verse 13. And it came to pass in the 600th and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth, and Noah removed in the covering of the ark, and took, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. This will say is the end. We're getting, he's getting off the ark. I mean, he's getting off the ark now. How much time has passed from this point from the beginning? It's a big time period. Here's what I want you to see. If we were to jump back to Genesis chapter 7, we see that he got on the ark in the uh, second month of the 17th day of the month of, the, of his 600th year of life. Now we're at his 600th and first year in the first month and the first day of the month. So we are at one year later. One year. So here's the question, getting our little map out. If the water stopped increasing at five months, then that means for seven months it took this basin to drain. With a 200 mile wide drainage. Is it logically, physically, possible for this basin to ob obtain or rather keep water in there for seven months once the water's ceased. It, see, we're give, well, I'm going to give it that supernatural possibility that the water was coming in at such a great rate that our, uh, um, our drainage here couldn't keep up with it. But once it stopped, are we really looking at, I mean, this is a huge drainage requiring seven months in order for there to be enough dry land around Noah for him to step off of the ark. Highly improbable. Highly improbable. Now, let's turn to Genesis chapter 9 for our next piece. And God blessed Noah and his son and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Replenish there in the 18th, and well, the English language in this Bible was written means to fill. So it says, Bless Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is the exact same language that was given to somebody else I know. That's Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 2, or rather Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we see the exact same command. It was given to Adam and Eve 
to fill the earth because the earth, not just a little portion of it, but the whole earth was empty of Adam's kind. The same thing is now being given to Noah, his sons, and their wives, that they are to go and do the same thing. Or is he simply talking about filling up the Mesopotamia basin again? Or is Noah and his sons and their wives the beginning of the Adam kind people and all the earth starting over right there again? Then for the last little piece of the puzzle, which perhaps is most important in our understanding, our relationship with God. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 11. And God said unto Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there be, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for a perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a token or a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. There are several different kinds of covenants that you will find in the Bible. Some are conditional and some are unconditional. This is an unconditional covenant. Nowhere in this covenant did it say, I will do this if you do this. In fact, if we were to jump back to Genesis chapter 8, then the end of the chapter, you will find, well, let's just jump back to Genesis chapter 8. And we're going to come in at verse number 21. And the Lord smelled, a, this is Noah giving up, a, a, a first thing he does when he gets off the ark is he makes an altar and puts up a sacrifice. And, God, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. God had come to the place that he recognized, well, he's at least verbalizing it, that it doesn't matter how many times I destroy this earth, these people are always going to return to their wickedness. So he says, I will no longer, and he makes this unconditional covenant with Noah, that I will no longer destroy the earth with a flood and all things on it. And he puts a sign in the sky, the rainbow. And just the other day, I saw a rainbow in the sky coming home from my work as a reminder that God will not destroy the earth again with the flood. Yet, this very spring, we had a flood that was in our local area that was so bad that many people couldn't get out of their home to go to work because they were closed in by the flood. Some lost their homes, our country, up in, in the north, in Nebraska, Missouri, Iowa, Kansas, all took a, a flood that was so great that homes and farms are closed down and will may, may never be started up again because of the devastation of that flood. There was no small flood. Did God break his promise? Because if we believe, and this, this, is, this is for me, this is all I needed. You either believe God or you don't, and I believe God. And if God says that he's not going to do something again, then when I look on, the, local, on the, the national news and I see all the devastations of the flooding that's going on and has been going on for my entire life, if I say, well, that's the promise that God made, then God's a liar. 
And I'm telling you right now, you might as well throw this book out because right alongside of the lying about the flood is a lying about salvation. Or are we thinking too small and perhaps we need to take the word of God and understand it to its greatest understanding and that is that God covered the whole earth with water at one point in time and all flesh, all living creatures that were not on that ark died. And God says that I will never do that again. And he hasn't. He has been faithful and true to that promise because God is a just God, a trustworthy God, and a God that we can rely on, not just to keep a flood promise, but to keep his promise of salvation. May God bless you and have a wonderful day. Thank you.